0: Welcome to the Adventures in Arting podcast. This is episode number thirty-two, Jane Davies Collage Journey, recorded on June twenty-fifth, two thousand and fifteen. My name is Julie Bethan Balzer, and with me is my co-host Eileen Schubalzer. Hi, Mom. Hi, Julie. So I know that we're starting to get into the Thursday panic. And uh, the Thursday panic, for those of you who don't know my mother, is every Thursday my mother obsessively checks the weather every 15 seconds because, Mom, you um, put together and host an outdoor concert series in the town that you live in um, that's free and open to the public in one of the parks. And so the weather is of tantamount importance.
1: Well, it's not just Thursday. I start checking immediately after the concert. For the next week. I I just become hysterical about it. As if I could influence it by just looking, you know?
0: I know. I know you do because literally I will call you and I'll be like, how are you? And it will be like a Tuesday or Wednesday and you're like, it looks like rain on Thursday. And it's like someone died.
1: Well, what's interesting is because you have bands who have to set up, you cannot wait till the moment the concert starts to decide rain or shine. So... And then people get angry at you if you call it for indoors and it doesn't rain. But I have had the opposite happen, and it's terrible because then the whole concert is canceled and nobody gets music.
0: Meaning the opposite, meaning you don't call it for indoors, but then you can't do the concert. Yeah, it starts to rain and that's it. Now, you have always, and this is probably one of the reasons that I am an artist, is you've always been a great supporter of the arts in in every sense, and you started this free summer concert series in town because, well, because why,
1: Mom? Well, in the year 2000, I was on a committee, and we were celebrating the year 2000, and we planned some events, and another woman and I, uh, as part of our duties, had an outdoor concert, and people loved it, and we had a sort of little-used park. And it turned out to be wonderful. So then the next year we decided, well, why not just do the concerts? And then she moved and I just kept doing it repetitively (laughs) as I do so many things. And now it's 15 years later. But you're very careful about how you curate the concert series, which I
0: often think is like curating a museum exhibit or anything like that, because you're always trying to get variety from year to year, along with a couple favorites. And also, I know you talk a lot about introducing people to different kinds of like world music and stuff. So it's not all the same stuff every year.
1: Well, the audience is very eclectic. And so you can't just have one group being satisfied. So there's one group. Who would love it if every concert was a big band concert and then there's another group who would love you know blues at every concert and you just really have to vary it so there's something for everybody because since it's a free concert and it's sponsored by the town you want everybody to get at least one concert that they like Which is good.
0: So uh, I know you've got a whole bunch of cool bands that are coming and that you're excited about. And I think one of the most fun things that you get to do is they send you their CDs, right? And you listen to the music and try to put together what you think would be an interesting program.
1: I do get a lot of these uh, CDs from the bands, although a lot of them now they have websites and they just ask you to download the music from there and then you get to see them often. Uh, because it'll be a little video of them in concert so you get a sense of that because one of the things I look for is a band that uh, has some interplay with the audience Uh, we're in an outdoor situation with noise traffic kids running around dogs airplanes so you really need the audience to connect with the band and vice versa otherwise uh, it just doesn't work in that kind of setting
0: I happen to be a big believer and actually I have a public art post on my blog today, but that anytime you can bring art of any kind, music, dance, poetry, visual art, theater, whatever it is to people in a free and accessible
1: way, I think you never know who you're, who you're going to touch, who you're going to reach. Well, I'll just finish with this. You know, nowadays kids don't get to see a lot of these kinds of, uh, free concerts, uh, with real live music with real live musicians of all kinds playing they they see it on tv or they listen to it on the radio or they download it but for little kids to be able to see actual musicians playing singing performing i think that has an influence on them going forward as to whether they want to be a musician listen to music, go places where there is music, I just think you can't help but influence kids to think about music as an integral part of life. I think that's true. Well, I certainly know you, you you
0: brought me to a lot of live music when I was a kid, and what an accomplished musician I am. I was just gonna say, my
1: work (laughs) is done
0: totally tone-deaf. Anyway, uh, our guest today, who also I think is very actively involved in her small-town life up in Rupert, Vermont, is Jane Davies. And Jane is a full-time artist working in collage, painting, and encaustic. She offers workshops at her studio and nationwide, and she teaches a lot of them, by the way, focusing on helping people to find a personal and playful approach to art. And beginning as a potter in the early 90s, selling her colorful hand-painted ceramics at craft shows, Jane gradually transitioned into freelance art, tableware, fabric, paper goods, stationery, and other products using painting, collages, or medium. And for the past several years, she spent most of her efforts towards teaching, writing, and making art. So welcome, Jane. Thank you. And you Thank had you actually, I you remember, know. you have a very small post office, right, in Rupert? And you were putting, yes. you you saved it with, uh, by having people send art. Ha! I'd like to think that. Well, the three or 4,000 people that,
2: that sent me postcards, most of which were handmade, um, did a great deal to increase the volume of mail going through this little post office, and it is not going to close anytime soon. So, so fantastic! I don't, those, I don't know if those two facts are related. I would like to think so. Um, but no, the post office is staying open, so thanks to everybody who sent postcards. Which is We'll wonderful. just take credit for that, okay? What, what did you end up
0: doing with all the postcards?
2: I have them um, stored safely in boxes where the mice won't eat them. (laughs) And I'm not not quite sure what I'm going to do with them. I'd love to display them, but they have, many of them have content on both sides. And so displaying them wouldn't, it wouldn't work to just put them up on a wall. Um, If you have any ideas, please let me know. You need a clear wall. Something like that. Or like put them in plastic sleeves and hang them like a mobile.
0: I know. You know what, actually? It totally makes me think of the sketchbook project. Are you familiar with that out of Brooklyn? Um, Yes. Yes. Yeah, so they have all these sketchbooks, and what they've done to kind of display them, because frankly, going down to the library, is, and this is, again, about seeing art in person versus online, uh-huh. but if you go down there, you can check out some of the books. Well, you can't take them very far, but you can, you know, bring them over to a table mm-hmm. and look at them, but you can also, they've digitized, and you can actually see in, like, a little click-through gallery. I mean, now, this would be a huge mm-hmm. pain in the butt for you. I recognize that, but, you know, I think that is mm-hmm. one of the ways to look at, for people to be able to see small art. Yeah,
2: I did scan every single one of these for a while. But after a certain point, it just... And I did put them up on galleries, and I had links to those on my website um, so people could see what everyone had had sent. But after about, oh, five or six hundred of them, or maybe it was up to around a thousand... I just didn't have the time. I was spending, you know, half the day, every day, scanning the post, scanning the mail. I
0: I was going to say, what you need Um, is like a wiki version of it, where people basically upload their own photo of their own postcard, both sides.
2: Yeah, Yeah, something like that would would work. But um, maybe for another project. For this one, I'm going to consider it a a fabulous success. We've saved this little post office. Um, And... The, the postcards will be safe until somebody has the time and energy and ingenuity to
0: figure out a way to display them. To create a beautiful sail, and we'll all sail off to Tahiti on the boat with the postcard sail. There we go. There we go. Um, now I have been lucky enough to actually be been to your little post office up in Rupert, Vermont. Yes. Um, Which is right next to your house in your studio. And I'm wondering if you would tell us a little bit about the space that you call your studio. Uh,
2: The space that I call my studio is the upstairs of a building that was a cow barn built in around 1850. I think it's slightly newer than my house. Um, And so it has, it's under a gable roof. So I have kind of knee walls and then a triangular shaped ceiling um so it doesn't even though it's adequate square footage uh it's really comfortable for one person and a little bit of a tight squeeze for two so yeah it's right it's right on the edge of a river which is slowly but surely eating away at the foundation so um something's gonna have to happen at some point
0: i was gonna say the river becomes less and less beautiful the more it eats away at the foundation i'm sure it's
2: lovely. I can hear the river all the time, even in the winter, because um, the studio is right on the edge of it. So it's a little bit of it's a little bit of a challenge just thinking about the building structurally. Um, so I'm considering it sort of my temporary studio and hoping it'll last another four or five years.
0: And I know that I've seen some videos, and by the way, if for anybody who doesn't uh, read Jane's blog, you should. She puts up tons and tons of great process videos all the time. And I've seen where you have tacked up some paper to your wall and just gone ahead and painted right on it.
2: Yes. Um, Well, I I put some homosote up on one of the end walls between two windows, and then I built another wall coming out from the gable wall. And then I, just more recently, I, um, I kind of made two movable walls, putting homosote on these big shelving units on casters. So I've made myself some vertical wall space because recently I'm trying to work a little larger
0: on the wall,
2: um, so that, that's been kind of the challenge with the studio space. Now it's working perfectly well.
0: I think working on the wall is a, like, the best way to work. If I did not have to have an easel if I weren't a renter. I would love to be able to just nail into the wall and go.
2: Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But there is homicide on the wall. I mean, that's, um, it's not right into the drywall.
0: Right. Just, Some yeah, protection. Homo- now, did you, when you mm-hmm. say that you built movable walls, did you actually build them yourself?
2: Well, the movable walls are made out of uh, metal shelving units that you just get and put together. Um, And then I bolted the pieces of homosote to the front of the shelving units. And I got that idea from another artist, Melinda Tidwell, who's in Santa Fe. Um, I went to her studio last summer. Briefly, and she had these fabulous shelving units with the, with it wasn't homicide. I think she had a different a different material, but a flat surface bolted to the shelving units. and I thought, wow, that is the answer. that's that's what I can do in my studio
0: and it's on casters, and that's what makes it movable or, yeah, yeah, the shelving units are on
2: casters. I should take a picture and just post it on my blog because uh, it's pretty useful. And then, of course, there's there's storage space with the shelves. and then, You get a wall space as well on the other side. So kind of does double duty. Sounds kind of brilliant. I think it's pretty brilliant. And Melinda said she got the idea from someone else. So I don't know who came up with it. But uh, maybe her husband. He's pretty
0: smart too well you know art is always paying itself forward which is to say so many of my favorite things are tips tricks ideas that I picked up somewhere which somebody else credits to somebody else and they Mm -hmm. credit it to somebody Mm -hmm. else and you know I mean I think as long as you are not saying I invented this we all know that there are great ideas out there and they they come a long way through a number of people
2: you know sometimes I I find my readers and students crediting me with some idea that they learned from me that I certainly didn't invent. So yeah, I would just reemphasize that point that anything I put out there isn't my own idea.
0: Well, by the way, let's talk about your students because you teach a lot, both online and in-person. And I mean a lot, a lot. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us a little bit about maybe the difference between like your online classes and your in-person teaching?
2: Yeah, um, I think they complement each other, both uh, for me and, I think, for my students. Um, the live teaching I do, I do anything from one-day workshops to five-day intensive workshops. And I'm leaning more towards doing the longer workshops in 2016 and going forward. Um, me too. I've trouble. come to hate the one-day yeah. workshop
0: a little, I can't lie.
2: Yeah, there's there's a couple places where I do one-day workshops where I just love it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just fine. They're perfect venues, perfect students, perfect formats for that, or perfect places for the, for that format. Um, but in general, I really love to kind of see students get deeper into the process and deeper into what they're doing. And that just takes time. Yeah. But the nice, the online workshops is most of them are six weeks and, Um, one of them is 10 weeks and I send out a lesson every week and I post a video most weeks, not every lesson has a video, but most of them do. And then I, um, I open a blog that is open just to the class and people post their work and I comment and everyone else comments and it becomes a big sort of, um, virtual classroom. So the nice thing about that is, even though the content might not be more than, say, a five-day intensive, the it's spread out so that I do see lots of development um, over the period of time. So it's really nice to get, sort of
0: give students a lesson and then give them time to to work at it and. Work on their own. So I think time is a huge factor in learning. I know that for me, time is a huge factor just in creating, let alone learning and processing. And I think the thing is, for me in a one day class, I just, I always feel like there's so much more I want to teach. There's so much more I want to pull out. There's so much deeper um, I want to go. And it's just really hard in that format. Whereas if you have like three, four, five days, however long, you can get just that much deeper. People can really marinate, they don't feel pushed and pressured you know, to perform right yeah. now kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I well, just think things. there are also techniques that require drawing time, layering, taking time, all that kind of stuff.
2: Yeah, that's certainly true. Although the one day workshop, um, it's a format that has just become kind of a fun challenge. Like how can I narrow down this topic to like two or three points and get those across clearly?
0: Right. It's a taste. A it's a taste. Yeah.
2: So it's, yeah, it's a challenge. But how much teaching are you doing these days?
0: Very little, I would say. I'm uh really? Are you mostly being a TV star? <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm mostly being a misanthrope in my apartment. No, I'm I uh, you know, I really like teaching and I really enjoy it. It's the travel that I don't uh-huh. enjoy. And, Uh you know, being a, I travel a lot now for some, for other miscellaneous related business stuff. And so I think just getting off the road is important to me these days. Um, But I am Uh going to Australia next year, which will be my very first time in Australia to do a big teaching tour. And I'm kind of excited about that. Wow. A big teaching tour. I know. I think Um I'm going to be gone for like six weeks, which is
2: crazy. You, you don't have cats or chickens or anything, right?
0: You think I can keep something alive, but you do have chickens by the way. I've seen your beautiful chickens.
2: I'm just looking out the window as I'm speaking to one of my chickens, Ginger. She's overeating the neighbor's
0: garden, but That's all. <laughs> do you have a nice neighbor who's understanding of that? Uh, pretty much. Yeah. There you they, go. Cuz you you're, your chickens are pretty um, free range. I seem to remember them sort of wandering through the driveway.
2: Uh, they're definitely free range. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they they have my yard and neighbors on both sides, and they don't cross the road. Really? Yeah. So that joke like doesn't hold, did...
0: huh? So the joke about why did the chicken cross the road doesn't work because they don't well, cross don't, the road.
2: Why they don't cross the road? You know? Hmm. I mean, that's to me that's a much more interesting question. But their mom on that, they are
0: not saying anything. There you go. Well, I'm glad that the chickens aren't yet talking to you because I would start to worry. Who says they're not? Oh, okay. Well, that's a whole other story. Now, by the way, about your online classes, I know that you limit class size. And I'm just curious about that because yes. very few teachers limit online class sizes because I think, uh, you know, you can have a 1,000 students in an online class in a way you can't in an in-person class.
2: Right. But can you comment on the work of a thousand students? Well, in 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 my experience,
0: having taken some online classes, very few teachers comment on student work. So what's up with that? (laughs) I mean, where's the teaching there is what I'd like to know. I'm sure.
2: um, I mean, it just doesn't seem like it'd be as much fun. Uh,
0: I don't know. Maybe I ought to try it.
2: Like. Here, do this stuff and I won't comment.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think the thing to me that's exciting is seeing what people are doing with what you're teaching them, you know. That is one of my favorite parts of class is going around and seeing, oh my gosh, I never would have taken it in that direction or, you know,
2: Mm -hmm. whatever
0: else it is. But yeah, I mean, I think... Online classes are like in-person classes. I have been to in-person classes where somebody gives you 10-minute instructions, maybe 20, up front, and then you're expected to work for six hours without any additional instruction. And there are students in the class who are perfectly happy with that setup, and I always feel like I've been robbed, you know? I would feel like I got robbed. I would feel like I was ripping people off if I didn't. Well, I think that's partially because you and I have similar philosophies about teaching, you know? (laughs) But I, I do uh, leave room for the fact that there are people out in the world who have uh, the wrong philo- – I mean, no, I mean just different <laughs> philosophies about how it works. But, yeah, I mean it's the same as um, – You know, I think I think of it as you've got to teach up until the last minute and really give people everything you can share what you know, you know, what's the point of teaching if you're going to hold back some secrets. But I know plenty of people who say that, you know, that's not what they feel about it.
2: Yeah, I think that's true. I think also um, the amount of feedback necessary also depends on the content. Like if I were doing, and I thought of doing this, but it's just not my thing, I think, and there's plenty of people doing it, just demonstrating some techniques. Demonstrate some techniques in videos and maybe show some examples of the use of that technique in art. To me, that might not require a ton of feedback. That might just be, here's some content and oh, there's some video with it. Um, But I I don't really teach technique-based classes, although people have been asking me for a couple of years to do a a jelly plate printing class. And my answer is just, there's tons of information online for free, just, you know. But finally I caved and thought, because I've been teaching monoprint collage as a one-day and two-day class for a few years now, and I thought, no, I really have come up with some ways of using this that might be worth doing an online class. So but that that's sort of the first class I'm doing that is going to be for the first few lessons. It's going to be technique based. Mostly my classes are concept based. So, you know, I have a couple of different classes on composition and um, I have a class on color and it's not just color theory. It's like I give them exercises and assignments that sort of, require students to to think about color and to understand how colors relate to each other and then use them in a certain kind of context and that kind of thing really requires feedback I mean I look at the work that students do without the feedback or that they post first and you know a lot of people get it and then a lot of people sort of stumble at certain points and really require a little you know some guidance and feedback so I think that's what they're paying for
0: Well, you know, I think about the teachers I've had in my life, and there are a few moments that really stand out for me, and all of them are sort of almost offhanded comments that teachers made when they were taking a peek at something I did that just pinged in my brain. Yeah, like, so, for instance, I am... I took a class at MoMA, and I was doing something, and I was sho- showing the teacher some kind of work. And it, well, the focus of the assignment w- was nothing that we were talking about. And he mentioned <laughs> to me that he noticed that I often sort of uh, – the backgrounds in my paintings, meaning like behind a figure, because I do a lot of mm-hmm. obviously figural work, um, no. that the backgrounds are often throwaways. Oh. And my brain went – Oh my god. That's so interesting because for in- because and it was true when I started to look at my work that I'm so focused on the figure, I really do throw away a lot of the backgrounds. And I started to think about some of the figural work that I really love, like mm-hmm. um Van Gogh, you know, his famous mm-hmm. postman. And one of the things I love about that painting is the background is amazing. Mm-hmm. I started to think about yeah. Matisse or Picasso and and you know, the background is just not a throwaway, even in Matisse's simplified lines and Picasso's crazy patterns. And I just thought how interesting he didn't mean anything by it. It didn't, it wasn't like the focus of anything, but it is a, it is a offhanded remark that has stayed with me in my brain now for several years, as I've tried to sort of figure out how to, work that into my work I don't think I've resolved that issue yet but it's one that I'm I feel like I'm working towards
2: Mm -hmm. yeah working with sort of figure ground relations and yeah don't have to be figure and ground as separate entities yes I know a lot of times people say oh I'm just painting backgrounds and I kind of hate the word background because people often seem to mean it as um a kind of unimportant throwaway um like i'm just making backgrounds i think means i'm just painting papers without paying any attention or something like that i'm not quite sure but
1: you um, know on a film set what they call the extras they call them background oh is that right yeah they don't say bring in the extras they say bring in the background because
0: that's what they are right they're the little points and dots that fill in the background mm-hmm. but it's interesting, interesting to me just your whole idea about background too because you're an abstract painter mm-hmm. and um one of the pro- major problems I have with abstract I would love to be good at abstract painting but I stink 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 at it and part of it Except, is that can I just
2: object for a second <laughs> you did some awesome
0: work at the workshop you came to here in Rupert a well few years thank ago. you you must be a very good teacher um <laughs> I'll, I'll take the credit <laughs> but the thing is you know one of the problems that i always have is i look at something and i can't tell whether it's an abstract painting or a background for uh, figural work
2: oh interesting huh yeah i think uh if the if the artist says this is a painting then you are to read it as a finished piece if it's a work in process then you just don't know but. When someone puts work out there and says, this is the piece, then it's done. It's finished, and that's how you're supposed to read it. So, But there's no kind of um, way to tell that other than, I think, the intention of the artist.
0: I agree, and I will pass on to you a piece of knowledge that I pass on to my students all the time – Which is um, Jenny Doe told me this and she got it, I believe, via Jennifer Mercedes, who may have made it up and may have gotten it from somewhere else, which is she said the question about whether a painting is done is the same as the answer to the question, do you need to poop? Which is Ah! I can't tell you that no one can tell you whether or not you need to poop. Only you know whether or not you need to. And the same is true of, yeah. of whether or not your painting's done. <laughs> Only you know that. And the real problem that I'm having, I suppose you could say I'm art constipated, is that I can't tell sometimes when I look at a painting, is this an abstract painting that's finished or should, is this, like, I don't, maybe it's not having confidence in my work or whatever it is, but I just, I get stuck at that step a lot about whether that it's done.
2: I think, I think a lot of people do. That's got to be the most often asked question of me as a teacher is how do you know when it's done (laughs) and my kind of short answer is if you don't know if it's done it's not done um because it's pretty much done when your painting says "Mm, that's it i don't need anything else thanks um or if your painting makes you say "Ooh, yeah um if your painting makes you say i don't know if it's done or not then it's not done And sometimes, and this happens to me pretty frequently, I stop at a point where I don't know if it's done, which means it's not done. So I put it away for a while, and sometimes it's just a day, but sometimes it's longer than that. And when I come back to it, it says, oh yeah, I'm done. Um, So sometimes the painting doesn't need any more marks on it or anything to be taken away for it to be done, but it does need to sit and make a decision. So I kind of leave that up to the painting. But if you don't know if it's done, it's not done. And if you're the other thing is uh, if you're trying to rationalize it, sometimes people say, "Well, you know, it does have a focal point, and it does have, you know, it's balanced, and it's this and that, and whatever." Go through whatever checklist you have in your head. Uh, but if it doesn't say ta-da, then it can have all the requirements and still not be done. So. I think it really is up to the artist. And I think the more work you do, paying attention, the more you get a sense of what it is that is done for you, you know, what it is that expresses what you're trying to express. And that's a very individual choice. That's a very individual sensibility so that if I look at someone else's work that I could say, well, that wouldn't be done for me. If that was my piece, I would do more to it. Um, or I wouldn't have put that line there. I would have called it done three steps ago or something like that. But it's not mine. And so I have to read that painting as that person's expression as a finished painting. And usually in that context, it's more like, wow, they were really brave to just leave that like that. You know, I would have had to button it up and get a neat more neat and tidy but I admire the way they've been able to leave the rough edges
0: or something like that but I think this can... is sorry mom you rarely speak so go ahead
1: now I feel compelled to say something brilliant and actually I'm just asking a question can it also be that when you look at a painting? whether it's over time or not, you've lost interest in resolving whatever it was you were working on before. So it's not necessarily that the painting itself is done, but you're done with it. That's a
2: good point. Yeah. Some, that happens to me too, but it's definitely a different thing than the painting coming back and saying, yep, I'm done. The painting that I'm done with says, "Eh, you know, I'm not a finished painting. I'm an unsuccessful painting, (laughs) which is fine. I mean, there's loads of those. They're just part of the process.
1: What I think I'm trying to get at is I was thinking about failure and that Mm -hmm. failure is not necessarily bad. It's a learning experience. And the question is, does every time you make a painting have to end in success?
2: Oh, God, no. I hope not. Otherwise I'm a total failure, (laughs) Um,
1: but I sort of measure
2: failure and success in different terms. Um, I don't know about you, Julie, but I think if I go into the studio and I make marks for X number of hours or whatever I set out, like I've got two hours, I'm going to go out to the studio. I'm going to make marks. I'm going to put paint on paper. If I do that, then I've been successful. It's been a successful afternoon. Um, and whether i finish something or whether i like what i made or what that's just so second i mean second priority
0: or last priority it's it's whether i went into the studio and kind of kept at it yeah i mean i so su- i su- i subscribe to that old adage the only failure is not trying uh-huh. I definitely think that's true, but, you know, I remember when I first started putting, like, art journal process videos up in which you would, you know, end up creating layers and layers, and things would get completely covered up, and you would draw something, and it would get buried, and, you know, and I remember getting comments from people, like, why why did you do that layer? What was the point of it? hmm And what was your answer? Well, I mean, the answer is this, which is, I think, and this goes into the, what I titled the podcast, which is also, of course, an allusion to the title of your book. Uh, Or one of your books, which is that I don't think art is a destination thing. I think it's a journey. And, you know, the thing is, if art is like a paint by number destination where it's like put green, then add red, then a stripe of yellow, then a circle here, done. You know, that's Mm -hmm. a different thing than hmm, I think I'll try this. This is what I feel like. How do these colors feel? That doesn't work. Maybe some pattern here. Oh, this is next to my right hand. Let me grab it. Whatever mm-hmm. it is. I mean, I think that, I think art is a journey and the process um, should be pleasurable and not painful. <laughs> One would I hope. I There's a little
2: frustration in there now and then. And I think that's part of it too. Right? Yes,
0: I think that's true. But that, you know, whatever you end up with at the end it's kind of like uh, i would say now i'm now i'm going to make an incredibly grand statement but here it is which is oh. um you know, in my life, I've had more than one job, more than one career even. I spent my whole younger part of my life, the first half of my life, thinking I was going to work in the theater and I don't do any of that anymore. And was that time wasted? Or I was in a relationship for 17 years that ended. Was that a waste of my time? And the answer to both of those questions is no. The same way that putting green paint that eventually got completely covered up was not a waste of my time in creating a piece of art. Because those layers, those things, that stuff you go through, whatever. Whatever it is, um, mm-hmm. whether it's something that you have lived through or something that you're making, they exist in some way, either because they get uh, you know, referenced later, they build up something in the artwork that you never see. I mean, I know that I take skills and, thing- and gifts and things that I learned from that career and that relationship into the life that I have now, and I certainly think that anything that's an underlayer of a painting or an art journal page or even a scrapbook page, like those things have life later too.
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That's an interesting analogy because your experiences sort of all become part of you and inform the decisions you make going forward. And I think the same is true in painting because people ask me the same thing. Well, why do we put that layer down if we're just going to cover it all up? Well, you got to have a starting point and, I think each layer sort of in each mark kind of informs the next mark because each, each mark you put down, each layer you put down, each element you add to a painting changes the whole. And so that means it sets up a different, now you've got a different problem to solve, you know, and then you add another mark and then, okay, then it's a different piece. And so you've got to move forward from that, from where you are, but each layer and each mark informs the next one, the next thing that you do, even if the next thing you do is cover the whole thing. Um, I mean, I've certainly painted myself into plenty of corners where <laughs> what it really needs is a total game changer. Um, where you do something drastic, which really changes the painting and changes up the whole thing. You stop futzing and have to just throw something dramatic.
0: At it. Yeah. I mean, um, I used to teach a class called Ruin and Rescue, which was about ooh, the idea nice. that, um, you know, you need to get – if you know that you can ruin anything and then rescue it, then you lose the fear. And, exactly. And I think the fear – And part of that is just yeah, practice. Yeah. Part of that is practice and it's that idea, again, that the only failure is not trying. And I think that it goes back to that whole idea of – Um, If you're not sure whether to do something in art or not, like, should I put blue paint on this? Then you should do it because either it'll be a great idea and you'll know that or it was a terrible idea and then you know that. But if you don't do it, you'll never know.
2: Sometimes I get posts from online students um, where they they post something and say, well, maybe I should have put blue paint there or something like that. I said, well, we'll put blue paint there. And like, why not? What's the? But I, but I know people sort of, because sometimes you know when we're practiced at screwing up and rescuing, um forget how timid some people can be. At like, I don't know if that's the correct thing to do. Like, I think of it, I think I should put blue paint there, but I'm not really sure. So I'm gonna post it first and then ask. Should I put blue paint here? Um, and that's just that's just a matter of experience. I mean, the more you you um listen to your intuitions and act on them the more confident you get in them and you're right I mean part of that is putting the blue paint there and deciding no that didn't do what I thought it was going to do so I'll do something else now um you know knowing that it doesn't have to be the correct decision it doesn't have to be the the right decision the right thing that's just going to make that painting sing it's just it's just the next step
0: well, getting back to, I mean, that whole idea of the painting singing, and I just wanted to say that I think sometimes there is a belief that, you know, if, oh, if it has balance and you followed your seven design principles and you, you know what I mean, and the colors are supposed to work mm-hmm. together. Um, but that doesn't necessarily make for good or great art. And sometimes the art that I love or that sings or that speaks to me, whether it's mine or somebody else's, has a thousand things wrong with it, you know. Yeah. And like I think about a painter like Brock, who basically in so many ways is the father of modern art. And the truth of the matter is that he was not a very good painter, you know, Hmm. but uh, by stand by the traditional standards is what I mean. But, Uh you know, like when people talk about his skills, he didn't have the kind of like traditional, beautiful, perfect Renaissance style skills that a lot of painters had. Right. But Uh his paintings are powerful and interesting and they speak to me and i can stand in front of a painting of his in which somebody can point out to me the thousand and one ways in which the proportion is off the shadowing is off the coloring's not right the you know hands are bizarre looking and not real but i love it
2: well i think that's where personal expression comes in and in my classes that have to do with color and composition I really try to emphasize the idea that any sort of principle of composition or rule of composition or anything like that should be taken as a hypothesis or as a a thing to, um, to experiment with, not as a rule to follow. So if we're talking about, um, let's say, what? Say a focal point. And I know there is some rule out in the world there (laughs) that says your focal point should, should not be dead center and it should be in one of the quadrants about halfway up or something like that. And yeah, there's a lot of work that is powerful work that has that characteristic, but there's at least as much work that's just as powerful that doesn't. And so who made that rule and why? So let's try it out. Okay, let's try putting, um, sort of bringing the focus, bringing the visual weight, bringing the eye-catching area to one of these areas. And let's try putting it somewhere else. And let's try not having a focal point. And let's try having equal visual weight over the whole thing so that there isn't one area of focus. Let's try putting three different areas of focus. And like play with it as an idea rather than just adhering to a rule.
0: Yeah, I mean, art is as individual as people, which is to say there's no like there isn't one set idea of how you should live your life or who you should be or what clothes you should wear or what anything else like that. It's all according to like your personal style, your ideology, where in the world you are, even where in the country mm-hmm. you are, you know, and the same is true of art. Like, you know, I think when you look at the art that people make through their lives, it often transforms and changes like they do. It often transforms and changes based on where they move to or live. It changes and transforms based on the supplies that are available to them. I mean, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of stuff where I think uh, right and wrong in art is a dangerous, is
1: a dangerous, dangerous idea. Mm -hmm. You know, you ladies are. I'm so much older than both of you, or shall I say, I am more venerable than (laughs) both of you. Nice, (laughs) but I can remember in growing up where, for example. You would never wear pink and orange together. That was just, right, there were rules. There were rules. You would even blue and I green. After September 1st or after Labor Day, forget it.
0: I'm yeah, sorry. Are I you just, serious, mom? Like people like you, like never, unilaterally, you would never, people would never wear pink and orange? It was
1: orange? improper. You would never wear black and blue together just these were rigid rules that everybody sort of accepted as the right rules and I think what happens you're absolutely right is you get influenced by uh, by other people other cultures other times but I also think that sometimes you you don't even realize that you're buying into these rules because they're kind of subconscious and and so what's exciting is when you do something that breaks one of these rules and it works it used to be you'd always wear a a pin a brooch only in you know on your front shoulder there and then suddenly somebody's wearing one on the top of their shoulder they're putting one on their belt they're doing different things and people realize oh that works i i think that that sometimes you have to see it before you realize oh you can do that so you won't see it if you don't try it So
0: like Lady Gaga taught us that it's all okay not to wear pants. Well,
1: you know, for some people it might be. (laughs) Here again, being venerable, I won't be trying that. At least I won't be doing it voluntarily. I was going
0: to say, you may not try it on purpose, but as you age, it may naturally happen. (laughs) I cannot
2: foretell the future. I think art is just as subject to um, fashion as as anything else. And I think you're right that... We, we adhere to all kinds of cultural expectations and rules without, without thinking about it or without knowing it until you're, I mean, if you go to a, a culture that's, that's quite a lot different, then you notice a lot about your own culture, right? I mean, that's um, kind of standard practice. Um, and I think these rules that we have about art, they do come from somewhere. We are in a particular time and place and culture and they do have their roots somewhere. Um, so I wouldn't it, I wouldn't want to just like dismiss them as meaningless. Um, but okay, there's a, if there's a set of rules there, it's it's not a bad practice to become aware
0: of them and then challenge them. Yeah,
2: well, rather than
0: I would not say what you're doing. At all. An enormous swath of contemporary art is is uh, unaesthetically appealing on purpose uh-huh that that's certainly a trend in contemporary art right now um uh-huh I mean, I don't know I mean, I think I agree with you, art is fashion, fashion is art. I think you see things bouncing back and forth between the two worlds. I think you know for me, I feel like I just probably in the way I dress, like I don't think I'm particularly you know on trend fashion wise uh, and I don't think I'm particularly on trend art wise either. I think I create what I like and what speaks to me. And I try to, you know, encourage other people to do that too, to remember that the marks that you make, the things that apply, that appeal to you, that's not a right or a wrong. You need to go towards those things.
2: hmm. Yeah. And I think most artists would, would, um, would say the same thing because the ways that we are on trend are ways that we're not aware of. You know, I mean, I'm sure I'm making art that is, that adheres to some kind of current, current fashion in art. I'm sure that's true. I don't know what it is, but I don't think it's particularly relevant to my practice either.
0: Well, Um, I would put it this way, which is I remember going to a licensing event years ago in which I had, you know, my portfolio out and some licensing stuff. And this guy said, you're a first-time exhibitor. And I said, yes. And he said, can I give you some advice? And I said, please. And he said, you're not using the right colors. Oh, right. Was that
2: the licensing show or the Sirtex show? It
0: was uh, when CHA used to have a licensing Thing. Oh God! Many right. okay. years mm-hmm. ago, and so, and I was like, yeah. "What do you mean?" And he said to me, "Well, this is not the gr- the current uh, green, and this is not the current mm-hmm. red, and da-da-da-da-da. And mm-hmm. it it sort of blew my mind. <laughs> Oh, yeah,
2: that's what the licensing world is all about, yeah. Yeah,
0: and that licensing is a very different kind of art creation because it's not, Mm -hmm. the art that you create is not the art that, like, sings to you. It's a much more, I guess I would say editorial in the sense that, like, it needs to be edited by other people to be, quote, unquote, right.
2: Yeah, so the challenges in doing that, I mean, I did freelance art for 10 years, and I enjoyed the work. What I didn't enjoy was never knowing when or if I was going to get a paycheck and from whom. Um, So I did a lot of work on spec, and I never knew if I was going to get compensated for it or not, um, or get a contract or not. And that was the part that I didn't like, the uncertainty. Um, I mean, I did manage to live on it, but it was just an uncertain kind of anxious life. Uh, But the challenges are different uh, it's like you are given kind of a set of parameters and then you work within those or you bust out on your own and do your thing and become a huge success or not. Um, and there's kind of not a ton in between. I mean, there's a lot of work in between, but you know, if you're really good at following trends or you're really good at doing something that's very, um, fresh and different and personal and that catches on, then you can be very successful in that. But yeah, kind of trying to halfway follow trends and do your own stuff. It's just, um, I found it really confusing. I'm I'm not good at following trends. And so I, you know, I did okay, but it wasn't nearly as fun as teaching.
0: Well, I think licensing is a, it's a completely separate career. And I think there's this myth that some artists yeah. have that they can do it as part of what they do. But I think it's the rare artist whose work naturally fits into, you know,
2: it's a different activity. I mean, it, it's a really different activity, making artwork for products that have to sell. It's a different, it's a different activity. It has its own challenges. It has its own areas of creativity. And it's it's different than doing fine art. I mean, it's the same with with a craft like production craft business. I mean, I used to be a potter, so um, so I know about that. It's a you know it has different challenges, um, but not knowing what you're making as you're making it isn't one of them. You know, in fine art, I think the characteristic thing about about fine art is that you really don't know where your piece is going as you're making it and to me that's the exciting part and the part that that keeps really that keeps art fresh that can keep art fresh if you know exactly where you're going well and you're just kind of banging it out then it's a, it's a different thing and i think the work often suffers from that but i think most artists or many artists that i've talked to and heard from and see really don't know where they're going when they're when they're painting and you just have to rely on a sort of intuitive sense and you have to have some kind of confidence in your own ability to move
0: forward and you have to listen to your painting and it's a it's a whole different activity. Well, again, I would say this is the beauty of art, which is, I think it all comes down to personality. Some people hate the idea that they don't know where they're going. Well, that's wonderful because then you can be the kind of artist who creates art where you know where you're going and there's a place for you. And if you're the kind Mm -hmm. of, you know what I mean? I think that that is the thing too, which is, what's that old quote? Um, We're all geniuses, but if we judged a fish on its ability to climb a tree, you know, he'd feel like an idiot his whole life. Uh-huh. And I, I think that is true, which is to say, sometimes I think when you're struggling with making it in one area of art or one kind of art, maybe that's just because that's not you're the sweet spot for you.
2: Exactly. Yeah. I was just thinking about that today because um, I had someone in one of my classes uh, say that she wanted to, for the next round of pieces she did, she wanted to become a little more systematic and methodical. And I thought, Oh no, you don't. You're doing perfectly well with your, your level of sort of methodology and intuitive going forward. And I realize that I do have some, occasionally I get students who are very, they want, they really want to know where they're going and they are very sort of methodical, systematic, organized people. And so they make the work that way. And I, I sort of think, there's a place for someone like that in art making, and my approach isn't it. So I try to sort of honor their tendency to do that and and help them along the best I can. But I'm sure there's you know someone else who can, you know, who models that better than I do. Um, well, I think but sometimes I that, yeah.
0: teaching, Jane, don't you think that one of the things that is scary and exhilarating and exciting about teaching is if you don't have a methodical way of doing it. You know, there is a moment when you wonder whether the students will be able to produce, you know, because it's not a methodology necessarily in which, you know, like it's going to go A to B to C. Whereas a lot of teachers who teach and students take those classes, they have a, if you do A, B, C, it'll turn out like a Bob Ross painting or whatever. Do you know what I mean? Well, you'll get something that you like that's recognizable.
2: Right. Right. Yeah. And and if anyone's taking my classes thinking they're going to get something that (laughs) <laughs> is recognizable and and predictable they probably should take a class from Bob Ross or someone else but um yeah i mean i set up my lessons and my assignments in a way that doesn't doesn't predict the outcome as much as it sort of sets parameters for the process and so students' work does come out very differently and and i pat myself on the back when that happens <laughs> if everyone starts to look the same or look like mine then um Mm, then maybe I need to change the assignment a little bit.
1: That's a lot of pressure to put on oneself to to have a, a goal that's very specific, because then you can be doing things that are right or wrong, because the wrong things are the things that don't get you toward that goal. And I just think it limits your choices. Yeah. It limits you you mean if if you sort of If have you a goal? knew in okay. advance I want this to look exactly like this. Oh well, God. Then, well then <laughs> you you're putting a lot of pressure on yourself because there's only one path that you can I follow. See. Yeah, yeah. And if you yeah. happen to not if you happen to deviate from that path, you've done something wrong.
0: This is the right. thing that freaks Maybe. me out about commissions.
2: Oh God, I don't do them. I can't I either.
0: Do. I can't either because yeah. I can't stand the idea that somebody would have an expectation that it was going to look a certain way or they want it to be blue and have a, an elephant or a butter. I just yeah. am like, Oh my God, you're going to hate whatever. I I just, I, I can't do that. Yeah,
2: I think when someone does, wants a commission, I, I immediately think they have something in their head yeah. and they want me to be their technician and I don't know what's in their head, and so I'm going to fail. So I just I just don't take them. I mean, if someone says, oh, I really like this painting, could you do one that's, you know, six just times like it. size? <laughs> the answer is still, you know, I can try, but it's going to look different than what you think it is. And if you still want me to try, fine, but I'm just warning you. <laughs> so... I don't know. Yeah, I can't really paint direction either, so.
0: I think it's just really hard to recreate. Like, the few times I've ever been like, oh, you know, I really liked that piece that I did, whatever. Let me try to recreate that. That's always sort of a loser. I think if you go towards, oh, I really, uh, you know, enjoy circles, then that's a separate issue. But it's just never going to look like that original thing somehow.
2: I do. I. Agree with you. And I sometimes take a piece that I like of mine or of someone else, um, just steal it. And instead of saying I'm gonna make a piece that looks just like that, I say I'm gonna make a hundred of those.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, I don't actually make a hundred, I might make twenty, but I'm gonna make a whole bunch of those. And what I mean by that is I'm using that as a springboard and I'm gonna play with the elements that are in that piece. Um, or play with what looks like the process of that piece or something. And I can get 20 pieces that look really different, but that all came from that original piece as a springboard. And it is an assignment that I sometimes give students, and I have to be really careful and specific in, in um, formulating the assignment. But it always, the goal of that assignment, by the way, is to take the person somewhere new. The goal isn't to make the painting look like their inspiration piece. It's to give them a new way of doing mark making, or make them try some new visual vocabulary that they can then develop and make it their own, and that sort of thing. I mean, if it ta- or it might it might take them in the direction like, oh, they decide they really hate that piece after trying to do <laughs> something completely different. Um, but it's always an interesting process and result in terms of teaching when I give people that assignment and also just when I give myself that assignment.
0: Well, you know, I did a DVD a couple of years ago about working in a series and mm-hmm. the, which is the same idea basically you're talking about, which is when you chase mm-hmm. a single idea for a long time, uh, I think you learn so many things and whether Mm -hmm. it's working in a series, meaning one painting after another, chasing an idea, or, um, my friend Jane, Jen Mason taught me this idea, which is if you work on several pieces at the same time, then every time you say, should I put blue on it? When you do, when you don't, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's Mm -hmm. that the road diverges so to speak in the wood and you get to follow both paths. Right. And I think it's interesting. Let me ask you this. Do you ever not work in a series? Do I ever not work in a series? That's an interesting, I never, because my impulse to say is, of course, I don't work in a series all the time. But now that I really think about it, you get a bug up your butt and then you just kind of chase it, don't you?
2: Exactly. And it's, it's, it always amazes me when people find the idea of working in series as Something they've never tried or something that's new. But I can't think of one artist whose work I've seen that doesn't contain multiples of each idea. Well, maybe it's
0: and that we're not, it's the language of a series, that you're not thinking of it as a series.
2: I think that's probably true. But the other thing is, when I, I mean, I, this is another sort of teaching challenge. Um, when I say we're doing a series, often if people try to do a series or they start with the intention of doing a series the question often becomes well like can i put a little bit of blue in this one if there's not blue in the others like how much can they vary and so then that's a little a little hard to address because i want to address the series as a process idea and i do a class called series as process Rather than what should the pieces look like, and so it's a little hard to get across the idea that it really doesn't matter what the, how close or how far away from each other the final pieces are. It's not we're not trying to make a set of pieces that will hang together. We're trying to chase an idea. and I like your terminology there of chasing an idea.
0: yeah, well, so you come up
2: with a set of parameters that you want to chase and then,
0: And it changes, like you keep, like (laughs) like we always say, and like the title of this podcast, it's a journey, it's a journey, and like you know, I think my favorite, one of my all-time favorite road trips was when I drove across the country, and we didn't really have an agenda. So if you saw a big sign on the side of the road that said the world's tallest pie, seven miles, you could say, hey. Let's go see the world's tallest pie and eat some of that, you know? And I think like (laughs) art is like that too, which is when you, when, when the world's tallest pie shows up, you got to go, you know, take a detour because it's worth it. And I think um, I often talk about on my blog and stuff, I talk about like, follow the shiny ball, like whatever it is that Mm -hmm. grabs your eye that interests you go towards that. Don't force yourself to stay in something that's not interesting to you at that moment.
2: Right, and that's that's the difficult part as as an artist and as a teacher. I think um, in communicating the the idea of series as process. I mean, that just I I find it a productive way to work to to chase down an idea over the course of a number of pieces, and then. Um, but if you're bored with the idea or you're done with the idea, then there's no reason to keep going. But hopefully in the process, a couple of other ideas show up that you might,
0: you know, the seven, the,
2: what is it? The tallest pie in the world.
0: Yes, it was. They were, they were literally like a foot and a half of meringue on top of all the pies. It was good. It was tasty. Mm.
2: A foot of meringue. Okay. So if the foot of meringue shows up, I mean, hopefully some feet of meringue show up in your process of chasing one idea, some other ideas show up and you have the opportunity then to follow them and you don't have to sort of label it as, oh, well, I'm making a new series now. I mean, that's kind of you get you get to label that later if you want, but it's not um, it's not necessary and and just the idea of letting your idea expand over a number of pieces is is a lot of what
1: I want to get across. And exploring my own work. Aren't you working in a series anyway just because you're one person and you've done something and whatever you do going forward, there's some residue from what you've just done that's with you. So in your whole life, everything is a series.
2: Exactly. I mean, then how do you define the series? Well, hmm. you can look at the work after the fact and say, okay, well, this is a group and then that's a group. Um, I find that when I work in a continuous session, like even if it's, you know, three days in a row or three weeks in a row um, without much of a break, all of that work gets categorized as a series because it it tends to be dealing with the same issues. And then if I take a break and I go teach for a while and then I come back to the studio, I might have a new idea. And so the work I do going forward has a different look or deals with a different set of ideas. So I find that my series tend to be defined more by by work sessions. They just do end up being serious when I work on them sort of continuously. Well,
0: I was going to say also because of just the mess in the way that I work, like, so I'm reaching for some of the same paints sort of over and yes. over some of the same tools. Cause they happen to be out in there and blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I could talk to you for another six hours, but can you believe we've actually already talked for about an hour? I think we have. I know. Amazing. So I do want to mention Jane, that you have a new website, called Jane Davies Art Gallery. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, I opened that just uh late December and it's not um it's not replacing my current website, jane Uh it's just a new site where I'm offering my work for sale. It's an e-commerce site. So
0: you can look at my work, you can buy it. Um, Is it prints or is it original work or is it both? It's
2: original work, but there's a link to Fine Art America where I sell a lot of work as prints. And there's a link to Jane Davies Art Gallery um, from my Jane Davies Studios site. Just in the menu, it says gallery and that goes right to the new site. So instead of having a gallery on my Jane Davies Studios site, I just created a new website for it that that
0: is an e-commerce site. Cool. And has it been a good, great, wonderful success for you? Oh, absolutely.
2: Sell and work right and left. I just can't keep it in space.
0: <laughs> That's what I like to hear.
2: <laughs> no, I've sold a few pieces. But to tell you the truth, I it was a big push to get the website done and up and live. And um, then I had a stint of teaching. And now I'm um, going to start marketing it a bit. I'm gonna start sending out newsletters and um put new work up on a regular basis. Um I have an assistant now who can
0: help me with that and kind of keep it. Ooh, you have an assistant. That's so fancy, Jane. Isn't
2: this? (laughs) Yeah, she's awesome. So she's virtual. So she's not in my lap. She's um somewhere in Massachusetts.
0: Well, that's nice though to have someone to help. I keep I you keep have... talking to people all the time about their assistants. I want to always hear how's it going. How'd you find them? Is it working out? And across the board, everybody I've never heard a single person who didn't say it's awesome. Do you have one? I Julie? do not. I try to make. I've tried to force <laughs> my mother to be my assistant, but she's very reluctant. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and plus, Christ she's kind right of the world. boss of me, so it doesn't work so well.
2: I see. You're each other's. There assistants. you go.
0: Yeah. There you go.
2: But, uh, yeah, if you want info about that, email me, and I will be glad to send you some. Cool.
0: Well, so, so uh, Jane, do you want to give uh, – I know you gave a little, a little URL information, but you want to just tell people where they can find you online. I know you don't have an Instagram, which makes me super sad. Sorry, I don't have a smartphone because
2: there's no cell service in Rupert yet. So – when there's cell service in Rupert and I can make real use of a smartphone, I'll get one, and I'll get on Instagram. I promise.
0: There you go. I'm just saying, if you think about it, like, if you had lost your post office and you had no cell service, I mean, you guys might as well have gone back in time. Hopefully. <laughs> there <laughs> I mean, you go. That's part of the beauty
2: of Rupert. There you go. That.
0: Okay, so where um, so can, where can people find you online? Do you have a Facebook page and stuff like that?
2: I do. Just go to my website. It's Jane Davies Studios. Dot com, and from there you can find me on pinterest and facebook and you can find my blog from there and you can find my jane davies art gallery uh, site from there so if you go to jane davies com,
0: you can find everything and mom would you like to add anything on the way out
1: I'll just be here sitting by the phone, weeping quietly because you're not calling me. There you go. That's ah. clearly what happens. Okay.
0: So, as always, you can find me at com. And as a total side note, I was teaching at Art Journaling Live in uh, Arlington, Texas. And the first question I got from the crowd was, Where's your mom? Just so you know, mom.
1: Well, now they know. <laughs> there I'm you sitting go. Sitting quietly by the phone. Waiting
0: for me by not to phone. call. Can exactly. I just
1: say- Thanks to
2: mom for doing that concert series. I totally agree with you that that young kids being able to be exposed to live music is so, so important and enriching.
1: Thank you for saying that.
0: I agree. Mm. So leave us your comments or questions. If you think that art and Jane and all that kind of stuff is important because we always love hearing from you, you can leave them at ballsredesigns.com backslash arting. And if you tweet about the show, please use the hashtag pound arting podcast all one word a-r-t-i-n-g-p-o-d-c-a-s-t and thanks so much for listening we'll see you the next time on the adventures in arting podcast